0: Find out more by going to www.intelligencequared.com forward slash partnerships.
1: Believe it or not, and I know most people do not, violence has been in decline for long stretches of time, and we may be living in the most peaceful era in our species' existence. The decline of violence has not been steady, it has not brought violence down to zero and it is not guaranteed to continue. But I hope to persuade you that it's a persistent historical development, visible on scales from millennia to years, from wars and genocides to the treatment of children and animals. I'm going to walk you through six historical declines of violence, try to identify their immediate causes, that is, particular historical events of the era, and then try to tie them together in terms of their ultimate causes, that is, general historical forces interacting with human nature. The first historical decline of violence I call the pacification process. Until around 5,000 years ago, humans everywhere lived in anarchy without central government. What was life like in this state of nature? This is a question that thinkers have speculated on for hundreds of years. Thomas Hobbes famously wrote that in a state of nature, the life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. A century later, Jean-Jacques Rousseau countered that nothing can be more gentle than him in his primitive state. Now, these two gentlemen were talking through their hats. Neither of them had any idea what life was like in a state of nature. But today we can do better, because there are two ways of estimating rates of violence in non-state societies. The first is forensic archaeology. I think of this as CSI Paleolithic. Uh, Namely, what proportion of prehistoric skeletons have signs of violent trauma, such as bashed-in skulls, decapitations, arrowheads embedded in bones, or mummies found with ropes around their necks? Uh, Here we have 21 uh, estimates, and they span quite a range, but their average is... 15%, that is 15% of uh, people in non-states in in, um, archaeological sites uh, appear to have met their end through violence. We can compare that figure to those from some modern states. Uh, Here we have the battle deaths from the United States and Europe in the 20th century at about uh, six-tenths of a percent. Here we have the entire world in the 20th century throwing in all of the deaths from genocide, the indirect deaths from starvation and disease, uh, and the deaths from man-made famines, and that comes up to about 3%. And here we have the world in the year 2005. The bar is less than a pixel high, and hence uh, invisible, because it is at three one-hundredths of 1%. The second way of estimating uh, violence in non-state societies is through ethnographic vital statistics. The various waves of government that spread out of the first cradles of civilization left a few pockets of the earth still in a state of anarchy, namely uh, tribal societies of hunter-gatherers and hunter-horticulturalists, and ethnographers who have lived with them over a protracted period of time can calculate the various causes of death. Here we have 27 estimates, and again they span quite a range, But they average 524 per 100,000 per year. That is about one half of 1% of the population dies from uh, warfare every year. Again, let's compare that figure to those from modern states, and I'll stack the deck against modernity by picking some of the most violent states in their most violent periods, such as Germany in the 20th century. Two world wars uh, uh, comes in at 160 per 100,000 per year. Russia in the 20th century, two world wars and a civil war at 140. Japan, a world war that ended with not one but two nuclear strikes at about uh, 40. United States in the 20th century, two world wars and half a dozen other foreign wars at less than four. The world in the 20th century, again a uh, maximal estimate that includes the deaths from genocides and man-made famines, is about 60 And the world in the year 2005, the battle death rate is about uh, three-tenths of uh, a a violent death per 100,000 per year. So not to put too fine a point on it, but when it comes to life in a state of nature, Hobbes was right, Rousseau was wrong. The immediate cause was the rise and expansion of states leading to the various paxes, the states of peace imposed by uh, the kingdoms and empires, such as the Pax Romana, Pax Islamica, Pax Hispanica, and so on. The uh, expansion of empires drove down rates of violence, not because the early kings and emperors had a benevolent interest in the welfare of their citizens, but rather because tribal raiding and feuding is a nuisance to overlords, who'd rather keep the people alive to supply them with soldiers and slaves and uh, taxes. Just as a farmer has an interest in preventing his livestock from killing each other, so an early king or emperor would rather uh, that the, his people not waste resources in settling scores among them or shuffling resources around, uh, but he would rather have a claim on them himself. The second historical decline of violence can be illustrated by this woodcut showing a day in the life of the Middle Ages, (laughs) and the process that changed it has been called the civilizing process. Homicide records go back in many parts of Europe for centuries, and historical criminologists such as Manuel Eisner have plotted them over time. Here we have a plot that runs from the year 1200 to the year 2000 and I've plotted the homicide rate here on a logarithmic scale from a tenth of a homicide per 100,000 per year to one to ten to a hundred. And as you can see in the graph, there's been a massive decline in the homicide rate uh, so that a contemporary Englishman has one-thirty-fifth the chance of being killed as his medieval ancestor. This is true not just in England, but in every part of Europe for which statistics have been uh, gathered. Here we have Italy, the Netherlands, Germany and Switzerland, and Scandinavia. Here is the average of those five regions. And for comparison's sake, I've plotted the 524 per 100,000 per year figure from the non-state societies. This gap here is more or less what I've been calling the pacification process, this further decline, the uh, civilizing process. I took the title from a classic book by the German sociologist Norbert Elias, who argued that in the transition from the Middle Ages to modernity, there was a consolidation of central states and kingdoms from the patchwork of of, um, baronies and principalities and duchies that had uh, previously polka-dotted the continent. With it, criminal justice was nationalized, and the constant uh, feuding among warlords, otherwise known as knights, gave way to the king's justice. Also during this transition, there was a growing infrastructure of commerce, financial instruments and and, uh, currencies that were recognized within the borders of these newly consolidated kingdoms, and technologies of transportation and timekeeping that lubricated trade, so that increasingly zero-sum plunder gave way to positive sum trade, a point that I will return to. The um, third transition can be illustrated by considering some of the ways that the early uh, authorities kept peace within their kingdoms, punishments such as breaking on the wheel, burning at the stake, clawing, sawing in half, and impalement. But in a process that's been called the Humanitarian Revolution, these four barbaric practices were abolished in a fairly narrow slice of time. Uh, here we have a timeline of the uh, number of major countries with judicial torture, and there was a wave of abolitions concentrated in the second half of the 18th century, including Uh, the famous prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment in the Eighth Amendment to the uh, American Constitution, although uh, England clearly got there first. Uh, Also uh, abolished during this time was the profligate use of the death penalty for non-lethal crimes. In 18th century England, there were 222 capital offenses on the books, including poaching, counterfeiting, robbing a rabbit warren, being in the company of gypsies and strong evidence of malice in a child 7 to 14 years of age. Uh, These weren't just on the law books, but they were exuberantly applied. For example, Samuel Johnson wrote of a 7-year-old girl who was hanged for stealing a petticoat. But by 1864, the number of capital crimes had been reduced to 4. I'm going to switch back to the original presentation now that I got that good stuff out. Uh, Also... Uh, More recently, the death penalty itself uh, has uh, been on death row. Uh, This timeline shows the number of European countries that have capital punishment in their law books. There was a wave of abolitions more recently in the last 75 years, but the blue line, which shows the number of European countries that actually carry out executions, show that well before uh, European countries... Struck capital punishment from their law books, they had lost their taste for applying it. And the uh, downward trend for countries that actually executed criminals started uh, well before the legal abolitions. Also abolished during this time were witch hunts, religious persecution, dueling, blood sports, debtors' prisons, and perhaps most famously, slavery. Slavery used to be legal everywhere in the world. All the ancient civilizations practiced it. No one seemed to find anything wrong with it. Then, starting in the 18th century, a uh, wave of abolitions uh, was initiated that culminated in 1980 with the abolition of slavery in Mauritania, Uh, which marked uh, a transition such that for the first time in history, slavery was illegal everywhere uh, on Earth after thousands of years in which it had been legal everywhere on Earth. What were the immediate causes of the humanitarian revolution? Well, a plausible uh, prior event was the rise of printing and literacy. Uh, This graph from 1500 to 1850 shows that in the Uh, 18th, uh, sorry, the 17th century, there was an almost 25-fold increase in the efficiency of uh, manufacturing books. That efficiency was put into practice, so there was an exponential growth in the number of books published in the 18th century, kind of an early version of Moore's Law, and there were more people around who could read them. It was during the 18th century that for the first time a majority of Englishmen were literate. Why should literacy matter? Well, another name for this era is the Enlightenment, because knowledge replaced superstition and ignorance. And if you have propagation of ideas, the driving of bad ideas out by good ideas, and people are disabused of notions, such as that Jews poison wells, heretics go to hell, witches cause crop failures, children are possessed by the devil, Africans are brutish, and so on, it's bound to undermine many rationales for violence. As Voltaire said, during this period, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Also, printing is a technology of cosmopolitanism, a a way that people can be raised out of their parochial vantage point and be exposed to new ideas and new people, and it's plausible that the habit of reading fiction, history, and journalism can encourage people to inhabit other people's minds, leading to an expansion of empathy and a decline in cruelty. If you're in the habit of imagining what life is like from the point of view of other people, perhaps you take less less pleasure in watching them be sawn in half. The fourth major historical decline of violence has been called The Long Peace, and it speaks to the commonly made assertion that the 20th century was the most violent in history. Now, it undoubtedly is is true that World War II was the deadliest event in human history in terms of the absolute number of people that were killed, but there were an awful lot more people around in the 20th century, and it's not so clear that it was the worst event in history in terms of the percentage of the population that was killed. In this graph, I'm going to show you the 100 worst things that people have ever done to one another, Uh, taken from a list by a man who calls himself an atrocitologist, uh, (laughs) uh, Matthew White, who has a a book coming out soon. I've scaled them by the population of the world at the time and plotted them on a graph that runs from 500 BCE to 2000 CE. And the graph shows us that as a proportion of the population, World War II only comes in at ninth place, and World War I isn't even in the top ten. And for that matter, history's worst atrocities are pretty evenly sprinkled over 2,500 years of human history. Now, uh, you will undoubtedly notice that the data cloud funnels downward for the last 500 years. Presumably, this is not because in ancient times they only committed really big atrocities, and more recently we've committed big, medium, and small ones. But rather, it's a reflection of the historical record. The closer you get to the present, the more complete the records are. So let's zoom in on the last 500 years, a period in which Jack Levy has plotted trends in great power war. These are the wars that involve the uh, 800-pound guerrillas of the day, the countries that can project military force beyond their own borders. Uh, And all of these graphs stretch from 1500 to the present. Uh, This graph shows the proportion of years that the great powers fought each other, and it shows that several centuries ago, the great powers were pretty much always at war with each other, this is 100% of the time. More recently, uh, they've rarely been at war with each other. This is a graph showing the frequency of wars involving a great power, how many new wars were begun per 25 uh, year period. That also shows a decline. Here we have the duration of wars involving a great power, yet another decline. Past centuries had uh, events such as the Thirty Years' War, the Eighty Years' War, the Hundred Years' War. Uh, The 20th century had the Six-Day War. But there's one trend that goes in the opposite direction, and that is the deadliness of wars involving a great power. Namely, once they did begin a war, how many people were they able to kill per country per year? And that shows a substantial increase until... 1950, where the curve does a U-turn, and over the last 60 years, we've been living through a period in which the frequency of war has gone down, the duration of war has gone down, and uniquely in history, in recent history, the deadliness of war has gone down as well. If you combine uh, all three of these statistics to yield a total, a death toll for, uh, uh, for great power wars, you get a zigzag line, that terminates in the lowest rate of death in warfare in 500 years of great power history. We can zoom in on the uh, last 100 years, for which the data are still more detailed, and I'm going to show a graph that I adapted from uh, someone who's in the audience, the peace researcher Nils Petter uh, Gledich. And this breaks down, this shows the death toll from all wars worldwide over the course of the 20th century. And there are two unmistakable bloodbaths around the time of the two world wars, but they did not augur an increasing trend or even a new normal, but rather something closer to a last gasp. And over the last 66 years, you see the line hugging the floor showing an unusually low rate of death in warfare. This has been called the long peace, the fact that since 1946 there's been a historically unprecedented decline in interstate war. Uh, The United States and Soviet Union fought zero wars between them, contrary to all expert predictions that a Third World War was inevitable. No nuclear weapon has been used since Nagasaki, again contradicting a widespread consensus that the Third World War would be a nuclear war. There have been no wars between the great powers since 1953 with the end of the Korean War. No wars between Western European countries, which might might sound like a banal observation, like who would ever expect today, say, France and Germany to go to war. But needless to say, this is a historically unusual state of affairs. In the 600 years before 1945, Western European countries initiated two new wars a year for 600 years. And there have been uh, no wars between developed countries, the 40 countries with the highest GDP per capita. Well, what about the rest of the world? Uh, In a development that I call the new peace, the long peace is beginning to spread to the rest of the world. Since 1946, as I've mentioned, there have been fewer interstate wars worldwide, but there have been more civil wars, as newly independent states with inept governments defended themselves against insurgent movements, both sides armed, uh, financed, and egged on by the Cold War superpowers. But since 1991, even the number of civil wars has shown a bumpy decline. The question now is, which wars kill more people, the interstate wars of earlier decades or the civil wars of recent decades? And this graph uh, shows the answer. Here we have The uh, number of battle deaths per conflict per year for interstate wars, that is a government on each side which has been, as I've mentioned in in, uh, uh, decline decade by decade. Here we have the internationalized civil wars that is civil wars in which some external power butts in, usually on the side of the government, and the pure internal civil wars. And what it shows is that even the bulge in civil war deaths is nowhere near as big as the death toll from interstate wars of the earlier decades of the post-war period. If you combine now the number of wars with the number of deaths per year of war, and so to uh, simply add up all the uh, deaths from all wars combined, you get a stacked layer graph that looks as follows. Uh, each, the thickness of each wedge corresponds to the rate of death in that category of war, here we have the number, the rate of death in colonial wars, a category of war that no longer exists as the European empires gave up their colonies, so that's tapered off to zero. Here we have the rate of death from interstate wars, which shows a jagged and spiky but unmistakably downward trend with three bulges that include the deaths from the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and the Iran-Iraq War. Here we have the pure civil wars and the internationalized civil wars, And as you can see, the bulge of deaths from the civil wars by no means makes up for the decline uh, that the world has enjoyed from the uh, interstate wars in previous periods. And in fact, here we are in the first decade of the 21st century with an unprecedentedly thin laminate of war deaths, which suggests that the dream of the 1960s folk singers is uh, starting to come true. The world is almost putting an end to war. What were the immediate causes of the long peace and the new peace? Three of them were thrown out as hypotheses 200 years ago by Immanuel Kant in his essay, Perpetual Peace, in which he argued that democracy, trade, and an international community all changed the incentive structure uh, among nations to make war less appealing. More recently, Bruce Russett and John O'Neill have tested Kant's hypothesis and have found that all three of these variables increased in the second half of the 20th century and in a large regression analysis showed that holding everything else constant, all are statistical predictors of peace. Here we have the uh, two trend lines, one for the number of democracies, one for the number of autocracies. So now in the world today, there are more democracies than autocracies. Here we have international trade and it, over the p- past 120 years or so, and it, it shows that there has been a, a, a huge takeoff of trade since the end of World War II. And here we have membership in intergovernmental organizations, which has increased steadily since the late 19th century, but with an acceleration after World War II. <laughs> the final decline of violence that I uh, discuss, I call the Rights Revolutions, the targeting of violence on smaller scales against vulnerable sectors of the population, such as racial minorities, women, children, homosexuals, and animals. The civil rights movement in the United States put an end to the practice of lynching, which in the late 19th century took place at a rate of about 150 a year. By 1950, that had fallen to zero. Hate crime murders of blacks have been monitored by the FBI since the mid-1990s. They were never very plentiful, just about five a year. Uh, Even that has dwindled to one. Non-lethal hate crimes against blacks, such as intimidation and assault, have also been in decline since they were first uh, measured. The women's rights movement has seen an 80% decrease in the rate of rape since it was first estimated by the FBI in the early 1970s. A similarly precipitous decline in the rate of domestic violence, Uh, and this is true of the UK as well as the U.S., and a decrease in the most extreme form of domestic violence, namely axoricide, the murder of wives, and meridicide, the murder of husbands. Uh, In fact, in this case, the uh, decline for male victims is even steeper than the decline for female victims, showing that the women's movement has been very, very good for husbands. (laughs) The children's rights movement has seen a decline in American states that allow paddling and other forms of corporal punishment in schools. Every public opinion poll in the West has shown a decline in the approval and use of spanking and and smacking and other forms of corporal punishment, and rates of both physical and sexual abuse have declined uh, in the U.S. since they were first measured in, in 1990. The gay rights movement has seen an increase in the number of states that have decriminalized homosexuality, both nation states across the world and American states, which now stands at 100%. And anti-gay anti hate crime incri- intimidations have been in decline since they were first measured. The animal rights movement has seen a decline in hunting, an increase in vegetarianism, both in the UK and the US, and a sharp decline in the number of motion pictures in which animals were harmed. <laughs> well, why has violence declined on so many scales of time and magnitude? One possibility is that human nature has changed and that all violent impulses have somehow been bred out of us. Well, um, I consider this unlikely for a number of reasons, but I'll just mention one of them, and that is the prevalence of homicidal fantasies. Uh, A number of researchers have asked students the question, have you ever fantasized about killing someone you don't like? Say, someone who's stolen your boyfriend or girlfriend, uh, or someone who's humiliated you in public. And the results are that 15% of women and a third of men frequently fantasize about (laughs) killing people they don't like. And more than 60% of women and three-quarters of men at least occasionally think about killing people they don't like. And the rest of them are lying. (laughs) A more likely possibility is that human nature is extraordinarily complex and has always embraced both inclinations towards violence and inclinations that counteract them, what Abraham Lincoln called the better angels of our nature, and that historical circumstances have increasingly favored our peaceable inclinations. What are the motives for violence? There's raw exploitation, the elimination of a person that happens to be an obstacle in the path of something you want, leading to rape, plunder, conquest, and the elimination of rivals. There's the very different drive toward dominance, the urge to climb the pecking order and become alpha male among individuals, or the corresponding drive among groups for ethnic, racial, national, or religious supremacy. There's moralistic violence in the form of revenge, the idea that that, uh, if someone has committed something, uh, committed a wrong, it is not only permissible but mandatory to uh, direct violence against him, resulting in vendettas, rough justice, and cruel punishments. And then there are ideologies, uh, that, such as those of militant religions, nationalism, Nazism, and communism, that justify vast outlays of violence by a, a utopian cost-benefit analysis. If your belief system holds out the hope of a world that will be infinitely good forever, how much violence are you entitled to uh, perpetrate in pursuit of this infinitely perfect world? Well, as much as you want, and you're always ahead of the game. The benefits always outweigh the costs, moreover, imagine that there are people who hear about your scheme for a perfect world and just don 't don 't get with a the program. they might oppose you in bringing uh, heaven to earth. How evil are they they 're the only things standing in the way of an infinitely good world. Well, you do the math. What do we have to counteract these? motives for violence. What are the better angels of our nature? Well, there's self-control, the ability to anticipate the consequences of behavior and inhibit violent impulses. There's empathy, the ability to feel others' pain. There's the moral sense, particularly the sense of uh, fairness, that people shouldn't be uh, uh, harmed uh, for no reason. And then there is reason itself, the cognitive processes that allow us to engage in objective, detached analysis. The crucial historical question now is which developments bring out our better angels and stay our hand before they can commit acts of bloodshed. One possibility is that Hobbes got it right when he called for a Leviathan, a state and judicial system with a monopoly on the legitimate use of force, which can eliminate the incentives for exploitative exploitative attack by punishing aggressors and therefore uh, reducing their incentive for uh, attack. That can make everyone less nervous, because not only does the Leviathan deter you, but you know that the Leviathan is deterring your rivals, which means you no longer are tempted to carry out preemptive strikes and uh, do it to him before he does it to you. A second possibility has been called gentle commerce. The idea is plunder is a zero-sum game, but trade is a positive-sum game, one in which everybody wins. And as improving technology allows the trade of goods and ideas over longer distances, among larger groups of people, and at lower cost, more and more of the rest of the world become more valuable alive than dead. And uh, this is a point that uh, uh, our other speaker this evening, Matt Ridley, has elaborated in uh, glorious detail in, uh, in his book, The Rational Optimist. Some historical evidence comes from regression analyses showing that Holding all else equal, countries with open economies and a greater reliance on international trade get embroiled in fewer wars, are riven by fewer civil wars, and host fewer genocides. Then there's the hypothesis of the expanding circle, which was proposed by Charles Darwin, but named by the philosopher Peter Singer, according to which evolution bequeathed us with a sense of empathy. Unfortunately, by default, we apply it only to a very narrow circle of family, close friends, and cute little warm things like babies and small animals. But over the course of history, you can see the circle of empathy expanding to embrace the clan, then the tribe, then the nation, then other races, both sexes, children, and eventually perhaps other species. Finally, there's the escalator of reason, the possibility that the growth of literacy, education, and public discourse have encouraged people to think more abstractly and more universally. They rise above their parochial vantage point, which makes it harder to privilege their own interests over others. It encourages them to step back and recognize the futility of cycles of violence and increasingly to see violence as a problem to be solved rather than as a contest to be won. Some historical evidence includes the little appreciated fact that abstract reasoning abilities, as measured by IQ scores, have increased throughout the 20th century, the so-called Flynn effect, uh, in which IQ has increased by three points a decade throughout the 20th century. Other studies have shown that people in societies with higher levels of education and measured intelligence, holding all else equal, commit fewer crimes, cooperate more in experimental games, have more classically liberal attitudes, such as opposition to racism and xenophobia, and are more receptive to democracy. The final question uh, that I'll ask uh, is to wonder why so many of these forces seem to be pushing in the same direction, away from violence. And I think it's because violence is what game theorists call a social dilemma. Namely, it's tempting to an aggressor, Uh, to exploit the other through violence, but ruinous to the victim. And since, in the long run, anyone can be either an aggressor or a victim, all parties would be better off if everyone agreed to avoid violence. Well, regardless of the best explanation for the decline of violence, I think it has implications that are profound. For one thing, it calls for a reorientation of our efforts toward violence reduction from a moralistic mindset to an empirical mindset. That is, instead of lamenting, why is there war, perhaps we should ask, why is there peace? Instead of, what are we doing wrong, perhaps we should ask, what have we been doing right? Because we have been doing something right, and it seems to me that it sure would be good to know what exactly it is. Also, the decline of violence calls for a reassessment of modernity of the erosion of family, tribe, tradition, and religion by the forces of individualism, cosmopolitanism, reason, and science. Now, everyone acknowledges the gifts of modernity, such as longer and healthier lives, less ignorance and and superstition, and richer experiences. Again, it's Matt Ridley who has made this point uh, with far more evidence and eloquence than, uh, than I could. But there's always been a current of nostalgia and romanticism that has questioned the price, uh, is it worth it if we have to live with the threat of terrorism, genocide, world wars, and nuclear weapons? However, if, despite impressions, the long term trend, though halting and incomplete, is that violence of all kinds is decreasing, I believe that it calls for a rehabilitation of the uh, ideal of modernity and progress, and it's cause for gratitude for the institutions of civilization and enlightenment that have made it possible. Thank you very much.
2: Steve, thank you for that extraordinary tour de force. Um, uh, in, in a weird and unconscious way, I've been shadowing you throughout your career. When, when, when I wrote The Red Queen about evolutionary psychology, you wrote The Language Instinct. Uh, when you wrote The Blank Slate, I wrote Nature via Nurture, both about human nature. Uh, and now I've written The Rational Optimist, and you've written The Better Angels of Our Nature. Not that I'm trying to pretend my books are as good as yours... <laughs> if any of you have seen the play Amadeus (laughs) I am Salieri I I would love to write books as well as you do I'm not Salieri in the sense that I won't have you killed because um, uh, yet anyway Um, but uh, I'd just like to say that at the end of 696 pages of the better angels of our nature I didn't want it to end thank you for that um, yeah, I mean, I can kind of use this session actually as a bit of a sort of um, psychotherapy session for me because I've gone through quite a lot of these objections, obviously, having written a similar book. And, and so I'm curious to know how you answer some of the questions I get. When you're accused of being Whiggish, yes. you know, you're like Thomas Babington Macaulay. You're, you're, you're back to saying there is an arrow of progress. Um, you're, you're enlightenment. You're not relativism.
1: Um, how do you respond Yes. Well, I I don't think it's Whig history to measure something and look at a graph and see that objectively it's really been getting better. That's just a fact. It's not Whig history. Uh, It's undoubtedly true that um, we've been getting taller, we've been living longer, we we know more, uh, and we're less likely to get murdered uh, or to die in a war and a genocide. Now, if that's Whig history, then that's really just history. That's just respectfully trying to get as accurate a picture as you can of the state of the world and reporting what you find. Uh, To the extent that it does tend to lead to um, discovery of processes that we want to explain. Namely, it does seem to be, can't be a coincidence that homicides have gone down, but also um, slavery and also human sacrifice and also debtors prisons, and hey... (laughs) What do you know? Rates of death and warfare have been going down more recently. If you have a lot of, uh, for, of graphs that seem to be going in the same direction, from the top left to the bottom right, then that's an empirical puzzle that needs an explanation. And if there are general forces that, uh, that seem, to, seem to push many disparate phenomena in the same direction, that is a discovery that you make that the world is telling you about. It's not an attitude, a philosophy, an ideology, an a priori uh, commitment. Sponsoring the show for this
3: episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theater, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Um,
2: One of the impressions one might
3: get of your book, if you read
2: too many of the reviews, um, is that it's mostly about statistics. Now, sure, as we've seen, there is a lot of statistics in there, but some of the reviewers obviously didn't get to the second half of the book because there, there is... A fabulous exploration of psychology and, and some wonderful descriptions of experiments that actually sort of change the, um, uh, the, the way you understand things, uh, really drilling down into the neuroscience as well. Um, so this isn't just a, a book, a catalogue book. This is, this is really a book of exposition and understanding. But one of the curious things about it is that you are one of the founders of the School of Evolutionary Psychology, whose kind of motto might be, if you were being unkind, you can't change human nature. And yet, here you are saying something pretty dramatic
1: about human nature has changed. What's changed if human nature hasn't changed? Yeah, and I I do discuss in the book the, the possibility that human nature has literally changed in the sense of Darwinian natural selection operating to change gene frequencies over spans of centuries and millennia, uh, which is possible but it's not the explanation that I uh, rely on just on grounds of scientific parsimony since some of the declines are too recent to have occurred through natural selection. Natural selection has a speed limit measured in generations and some of these declines have unfolded over uh, decades. Uh, We know that some forces can bring violence down without any change in the genome. Therefore, the most parsimonious explanation is that none of them required this. Uh, But it is an open hypothesis. So I I do believe that there is such a thing as human nature, but I believe that uh, some of the parts of human nature are uh, open-ended, combinatorial, generative, rule-governed systems, cognition and language in particular. Once you have an apparatus that can... Uh, combine thoughts into more complicated thoughts and combine the complicated ones into still more complicated ones. And, and there's an exact analogy to the way uh, words combine into phrases and phrases combine into bigger phrases, and not a coincidence because the language is there to express the ideas. But what, what it means is one component of human nature is an engine to come up with new ideas, to explore the space of possible ideas, which means that a fixed human nature can come up with an infinite uh, range of ideas. And if the social world is set up with rules so that uh, in, as ideas are exchanged, the better ones are preserved and built upon and the worst ones are discarded, namely the social institutions of deliberative democracy... Uh, open journalism, freedom of speech, scientific peer review, uh, and so on, there's no contradiction in saying that a human mind operating, uh, a set of human minds operating under those rules, will explore the space of ideas and eventually blunder upon those that really make us all better off. Uh, when it happens in uh, the world of fact, we call it science and, and, and history. When it comes to the world of policy, we call it uh, um, uh, politics and society. And um, so I, that's why I don't think there's any contradiction between a belief in human nature and a belief in progress.
2: Yeah, essentially, the, the argument is that culture is cumulative, that, that you can, that ideas can accumulate, good ideas can accumulate within culture. And we, we, you and I can therefore draw upon good ideas that have been worked out by people in distant places and distant times that weren't available before, because we've We've, we're getting them through trade and, and exchange and ideas. As long, but, as, you can,
1: as long as you have certain ground rules, like you're not allowed to murder people who disagree with you, for example. So I see so itself
2: is a good idea. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um,
2: let's go to the audience, let's get some questions, and there are some microphones, and there's a microphone very close to a guy with his hand up.
4: Um, I very much enjoyed your presentation. Um, something that I'm quite fearful of is um, the role of... Uh, Religion and it's uh, something that may not be in, in, in integrated into your, your model, uh, your presentation is is 21st century weapons with uh, religious ideologies. Um, would you mind commenting on that and maybe we could talk more about that?
1: Uh, you mean religions might well, be even well, more... yeah. I mean,
4: I just you know, I, I'm not a public figure, so I I can say what I like. I think, but um. I just, I worry that um, you've got, uh, um, you know, 7th century thinkers in, in, you know, in, in the 21st century with 21st century weapons. These things worry me, and, and they're not built into your presentation. Um, and I, understandably so, this is a very specific random point I'm making, but if you could comment.
1: There, uh, I actually, I do discuss that in, in the book, the possibility of, of cooks with nukes. Uh, And um, obviously it can't be discounted. And um, although estimates of how, or popular accounts of how easy it is to build a nuclear bomb in your garage or how easy it is to pilfer it from an unguarded pile in a former Soviet republic uh, are probably exaggerations. And that the sources that I've read on nuclear security suggest that pilfering a nuke or even making one is uh, not impossible, but it's, uh, it, it's very, very unlikely. So again, I don't want to say that we should relax, that there's nothing to worry about. That clearly is something to worry about. But uh, the predictions that it is inevitable, uh, and, and I quote predictions that you know, people, experts saying, mark my words, it'll happen by 2005. For sure, by 2009. Forget about 2010. It'll happen by then. And they've been falsified uh, one after another, and, and there's probably a reason. Hi, I wanted to ask about doom mongering um, and this thing of us being more
2: pessimistic about things, uh, even when the facts just otherwise. My, my personal bugbear is crime in the UK, which has halved in the last 20 years, but surveys show that people think it's about the same or has gone up. My question. Does, how much damage has this negativity done? Because we seem to it done okay. And if it is damaging, given that actually most of us aren't going to spend time looking at charts and uh, all the things you recommend, how can we do something about it?
1: Yeah. Um, well, there is an incentive structure among many uh, uh, kinds of politicians to exaggerate danger, such as the exaggeration of the danger of terrorism that led to the uh, constriction of civil civil liberties in the United States, not to mention the war in Iraq, which had a kind of vague anti-terrorist rationale uh, based on a completely exaggerated uh, threat of uh, terrorism. Fear of crime uh, allows police chiefs and prison wardens and politicians to to get re-elected by shaming any opponent who is seen to be too soft on crime. Uh, And so I think there is a responsibility of um, journalists to report not just um, episodic accounts of this crime or that crime, but to highlight the uh, actual figures uh, when they're released, make that into a news event, put the graphs on page one. But it's part of a more general uh, trend that I would like to see toward a greater reliance, a greater sensitivity to statistics in education in public discourse, in journalism, in uh, government. That is, we should all be sophisticated consumers of statistics, uh, have the tools to evaluate statistical claims, uh, to find flaws in statistical studies, but appreciate trends that have been demonstrated uh, reasonably well. I argued for a requirement in statistical uh, reasoning and decision-making at Harvard. I was uh, outvoted. But uh, I I think this is an essential component to everyone's education. Steve, you're, you,
2: you've, you've finally turned me into a pessimist. You really think that, that journalists can uh, um, start to uh, report good news or, or report things in proportion? If it bleeds, it leads, yes. as they say. Um, I've got another person with a microphone over here, but on this side, for the next one, I want you to find me a woman. Okay. So. As it were. <laughs>
3: Thank you, Stephen, for your wonderful um, lecture. Uh, My question is, uh, I'm here, I'm a man, by the way. (laughs) Uh, So you're able to make a case with all the empirical data and analysis pointing out factors like international cooperation, economic or monetary benefit and all those factors that there is a trend that there's a reduction and decline in violence and death and on, but is that irreversible? So if you want to put your predictive hats on, yeah. Would you be able to comment that there could be some situation or circumstances, uh, there's a global reverse um, a trend that actually is going to see an escalation of violence and death and so on and so forth? Uh, is, it, is it going to be a cycle at all? Uh, yeah. What are your comments on it? Thanks.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, the, I think some kinds of uh, of reductions probably are irreversible. And I base that not on any optimistic uh, temperament, but just on the historical record. So certain barbaric practices, once eliminated, more or less stay eliminated. Uh, human sacrifice might be the prototypical example. Every ancient civilization practiced human sacrifice. They all got rid of it, and no one seems to be in any, in any hurry to reintroduce it. And so probably with legalized slavery, with uh, torture as a form, and mutilation as a form of punishment, uh, probably with the decriminalization of homosexuality, these things tend to be more or less ratchets, that once they... Uh, racial segregation. So things where the rationale for... whether it's a social practice... It can be eliminated with a stroke of a pen, and then it requires energy and mobilization to reintroduce. There are other kinds of events that are more uh, stochastic, more probabilistic. They depend on multiple actors. They can be highly affected by the actions of individuals. And there, I think it would be foolhardy to predict that that the progress has been irreversible. Civil wars in the developing world, which have been in uh, decline, that could go back up. The rate of crime has uh, yo-yoed up and down in ways that have defied every expert prediction. I don't think they'll go back up to the level uh, that they were in the Middle Ages, but could they double? Uh, sure, they, they could. And then there, there are wild cards. There are the, the unknown unknowns, some cunning fanatic who's hatching an ideology this very moment that no one's heard of, but it will catch on and infect one country after another. Uh, the possibility of massive terrorism that provokes some unpredictable response. Uh, And then there is the possibility that uh, stress due to uh, climate and resource competition could lead to increased tensions. Uh, Matt might have uh, something to say about this, but it must be added in here. As with, by the way, many of the uh, conclusions that I've uh, reached on recent st- statistical studies of uh, conflict, many of them owe to the uh, Peace Research Institute at Oslo, to, uh, Oslo for which uh, Nils Petter Gleditsch is uh, here in the audience. But what, a number of those studies have uh, shown that the connection between resource competition and armed conflict is not nearly as tight as most people think. Uh, and a number of studies have tried to measure resource stress at time one with armed conflict at time, too, and have found little to no correlation, which sounds counterintuitive until you start to think of uh, all the, your favorite wars, very few, if any of which, have been fought over uh, finite resources. World War I certainly wasn't, and World War II, and uh, um, conversely, there have been a lot of resource um, stresses. That have not led to armed conflict. The great American Dust Bowl of the 1930s did not lead to an American Civil War. There was an American Civil War, but it certainly wasn't about dwindling resources. So that's just a caveat that while I I would not rule out the possibility that uh, resource competition or climate stress could lead to an increase in armed conflict, it's by no means a foregone conclusion.
2: I'm going to go upstairs and then downstairs, where I think I've got a woman at both places. And, and I wasn't just being flippant or sexist. You actually make the point in the book that uh, one of the trends that's caused the, the, the peace is feminisation of society, that essentially a greater influence of women. So, let's hear from one. <laughs> um,
0: I'm just wanting to look back at um, um, the human nature once more and also taking it for granted that you were one of the proponents of human nature being much more slowly changing. And I'm concerned that the actualisation of violence, if it has really decreased so much in such a short period of time, if that has any correlation at all with the incidence of um, perhaps internalised aggression resulting in depression or even, dare I say, um, autoimmune diseases...
1: Uh, I I doubt it. That is, for the same reason that I'm skeptical of of a hydraulic theory of violence, in which we harbor some amount of destructive energy that has to be directed outward. Uh, If we bottle it up, it will uh, destroy us from the inside. Uh, I think the evidence suggests that that, that's not true. And again, I'll I'll, um, uh, appeal to the results of Roy Baumeister, uh, also Walter Michel, and other psychologists who've studied self-control and inhibition and have resoundingly concluded that the uh, consensus of the 1960s, that our problem is that we're too repressed, we're too uptight, we're too wound up, uh, that we need to let it all hang out, is exactly backwards. That it's the people with the most self-control who uh, lead the uh, happiest lives. Um, many, and In fact, you can manipulate self-control in the lab... And uh, get people—you can fatigue self-control by having people resist a, a yummy chocolate chip cookie when they're hungry. Uh, when you do, and then and that does fatigue the self-control muscle, so to speak. People have more violent fantasies. They punish other people with electric shocks more readily. Uh, they put more hot sauce into their food—the hot chili peppers. Uh, so. Uh, self-control, which really does, I think, push it. It is one of our better angels. It's one of the reasons that I can believe both in human nature and a reduction in violence. Namely, we do exert self-control under a broader range of circumstances. But, uh, but I think there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think we'll suffer at all. At the back, I think there's a woman with the microphone. Yes,
0: another woman. Um, I'm just curious about your uh, ideas of self-esteem and violence and the relation between, I heard you on the radio saying that it's actually people with a very high self-esteem who are more violent than those of a low self-esteem, which is the common belief.
1: Yes. This, again, I, I uh, owe, owe this conclusion to the research by Roy Baumeister, who found that uh, if you actually administer tests of self-esteem to various people, it's the wife beaters the rapists the neighborhood bullies the psychopathic killers who are off the scale they got plenty of self-esteem uh, to say nothing of the various genocidal dictators and tin pot tyrants uh, the problem with self-esteem uh is uh, as opposed to a satisfaction in accomplishments and by the way i'm sorry if i'm not making eye contact i actually don't know where you are but i'm going to look in the general your general direction uh, The the problem with self-esteem is that if it's unearned, that is, if it's narcissistic, then it's fragile uh, and and easily popped, in which case the common reaction is to treat the insolent signal from reality as a heinous crime and to punish anyone who disrespects you, who doesn't uh, treat you in the elevated way in which you treat yourself. And that's why... Far from reducing violence, self-esteem can increase it because it makes uh, uh, signals from reality intolerable and punishable insults. There's a lot of sacred cows being slaughtered tonight.
2: Um, Over there, there's the microphone.
0: Um, I'd like to invite you to comment a little more on the rise of uh, feminism and its impact and influence um, in the boardroom Um, And also how you would view female leadership, not just in the boardroom, but leaders of countries, presidents, prime ministers. We've seen um, some rather powerful women be appointed in Australia. More recently, I believe, in Brazil um, and so on. Um, What is your prediction about the change and what what will drive the change? And what is your prediction about where we will come out in terms of uh, the impact on behavior. As a
2: Canadian, you, you're just as happy about having a female head of state as, as we are here. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, right. We did have one briefly
2: in oh, Canada. No, you, sorry, oh. I meant head of.
1: Well, well, yeah, I mean, head of state. Oh, I meant I mean, the, the queen. Yes. Oh, yes. the queen. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, had, we did have a female prime minister briefly. Uh, yes, I think on average that it, that the empowerment of women is a force that that has driven down and will continue to drive down violence. Not because every female head of state is going to be a pacifist. Far from it. But because, uh, um, as I very quickly mentioned in this talk and, and expand on in greater detail in the book, there are many different motives for violence. There's no one thing, uh, such thing as a violent impulse. And uh, some of them are going to be evenly distributed across the the, uh, sexes, but some of them are very much a guy thing. And I think the pursuit of honour, glory, dominance, status, out of proportion to any actual rewards, is something that is gendered, as we say. It's far more prominent in men. And, of course, men commit more violence... However it's measured, more violent crimes, more violent fantasies, more violent entertainment, more rough-and-tumble play as children, uh, and so on. So to the extent that uh, violent policies come from the, an irrational quest for glory and grandeur, as opposed to practical reasons, then I think you'd see at least a slight uh, sex difference in favor of less violence Uh, when when now female leaders are in charge. Also, in uh, almost every public opinion poll, women favor the less hawkish foreign policy in the United States, a majority of women voted against uh, George W. Bush in both of his elections, and so as women are uh, more engaged in decision-making, one should expect that forms of stupid violence should go down. There's another, one other reason that's uh, more indirect as to why the empowerment of women uh, may lead to a decline in violence, and this is pointed out by Malcolm Potts, namely the... Uh, the main battleground in uh, women's rights day to day is reproduction, and in societies that disrespect women, they uh, women tend to lack control over when they marry, who they marry, access to contraception and abortion, and in those societies, women tend to have to marry earlier under pressure from the patriarchs and have more uh, children quickly. That tends to lead to uh, big youth bulges in the demographic profile of a society. And in in many of those societies, there's also some degree of polygyny, which means that a youth bulge is also a uh, single male bulge. Likewise in societies that practice female infanticide or female selective abortion. And when you have a lot of young, unmarried, rootless, and and unemployed or underemployed young men, that can lead to trouble. To the extent, uh, and recent studies have suggested that women control when women are given control over their own reproduction, they have fewer children, and the birth rate can plunge, economics held constant. So, as women, I think, have more power, we some of this, these demographic dangers will gradually be diffused. We're getting towards the end. A couple of very quick ones, if possible. Uh, lady up there, um,
2: I'd like to know your thoughts on the idea that um, many concerned parents often express that children shouldn't be watching uh, violent um, movies or playing violent video games and so on. Do you agree that it um, you know, erodes the sense of empathy in children, or do you think, in fact, that today the, the increasingly sophisticated um, simulations we have of, of violence in video games and virtual reality and movies and so on actually help children to... You know, vent that violent streak elsewhere, and then have more self-control um, in real-time kind of uh, interactions
3: with people. Yes, I,
1: I do think that that violent entertainment of cho- uh, in children is a red herring. That, uh, for one I mean, thing, consumption of of violent video games has skyrocketed during exactly the decades in which the rate of real violent crime has fallen. This isn't to say that there's a causal relationship, but just that everyone's expecting that kids should be going wild with all those video games, but it hasn't happened. And you, there, uh, there are at least some reasons to take seriously the possibility that there's a causal relationship. One of them is uh, a, uh, 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 a young man who's behind a video screen isn't doing a number of other things that he could be doing. Uh, another is that as... Uh, Baumeister points out in a recent book by John Tierney, video games are the last pocket of meritocracy that today's children uh, face. That in so many schools, because of the self-esteem movement, they're given the gold stickers for showing up. Uh, it's considered to be you know, invidious, competitive, and so on for kids to be graded according to their performance. Well, in a video game, it's merciless. You don't get a gold, you don't get a gold star for showing up. Uh, and one could speculate, as they do, that they self, uh, because they have data showing that self-control generalizes, if you, uh, uh, if you put away the laundry, uh, then you're more likely to lose weight and vice versa. Uh, it's conceivable, though not shown, that kids who learn the self-discipline of practicing for a goal, uh, not acting impulsively, exerting the self-control necessary to succeed in video games might could generalise it to other spheres of life, including uh, inhibiting impulses before they act on them.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. I'm sorry we didn't get to every question. Stephen Pinker.
0: <laughs> what are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run.